Well, good morning, and thank you for being with us this morning. Whether you are worshiping with us here in person or worshiping with us online, I just want to say welcome and happy August. We've been going through the book of Exodus, looking at the stories and themes uh, and what God was doing there and trying to wrestle with what might this look like for us today. Grace versus works. Is salvation just a work of grace or is it part of this work that we do to earn our salvation? But this idea that was so foundational for the Reformation, this idea that's so present for us, is also at the heart of our story today. We're in Exodus chapter 20. And for the last few chapters, the Israelites have been wandering through the wilderness. God has brought them out of Egypt, uh, liberated them from captivity, but now they've been wandering. And in chapter 19, they arrived at at the base of Mount Sinai, the very place where God met with Moses way back in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush and called Moses to do this thing. Now the Israelites and God meet here again at the base of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, we read this, starting at verse 5, just a couple verses. This is God speaking. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured, treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God gives them this offer of, of hey, why don't we do this together? And the Israelites hear this and they're like, yeah, that sounds great. A kingdom of priests? I'm in. Sign me up. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 20. Maybe one of the most familiar parts of all of of Scripture, for both Christians and non-Christians alike, these Ten Commandments. And I want to read these. I'm going to do a little bit of bouncing around because last week, Pastor Rob kind of got into the Ten Commandments in the first four a little bit. So a little bit I'm going to be jumping around. So if you're following along with me, you're just going to have to kind of keep up. But Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, says this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water below. Jumping ahead to verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Jumping to verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Growing up, one of the things that I remember most about growing up is our family chore chart. It was in our our dining room on the wall. And each day when we got home from school or even in the summer, we had to do chores in the summer. I mean, so we go to this chore chart and we find our name, we find the day of the week, and we find, okay, what chore is ours today? And I'll tell you, there is chores I didn't mind. I didn't mind taking out the garbage. It was quick and easy. I could do it really quick. But the chore that I hated the most, 
The chore that I would try to negotiate with my brother or sister, say, hey, how about I'll do yours and you do this one, was sweeping the kitchen floor. I don't know why, as an adult, I think, oh, well, it couldn't have taken me more than two minutes to do that. But I hated when my name was on the sweep the kitchen floor chore. We had these little rugs, and so what I started doing is I would sweep the piles. I don't, again, I don't know why I didn't like this. It wasn't that hard, but I would make these piles. And I think what I struggled with is we had this little you know, dustpan that we'd have to sweep everything into, and I could never get that little line was always left, and it would always frustrate me that I couldn't get that little last line of dust. And so what I would do is I would make my pile right next to one of the rugs. <laughs> Not just me, huh? And I would wait, and I would lift up the corner of the rug and put that little pile underneath and save it for when my brother had to sweep the floor. <laughs> but that didn't last very long until my parents caught on to me, and I wasn't able to do that anymore. But I knew, I knew we are not getting rid of this fridge unless it really breaks. And so as easy as it is to pick up the rug and see the pile underneath, it's going to be a lot harder to look underneath the fridge and see this pile of dust. So I began to sweep that pile of dust right under the fridge, and I can't imagine what it was like when that fridge finally came out. But there was some stuff under there. That fridge had seen some things. But as, as a kid, we were, we were kind of ingrained in us that doing chores is part of being a family. Part of being a family is we have responsibility and we have to do things as a family to, con- to contribute to what it means to be a family. Maybe you've walked into someone's house and you've seen this, kind of, this artwork on the wall that's, that's got to be from Hobby Lobby. And it says something like, you know, in this house we will, or, or house rules. And it's, you know, laugh often and, and love continually, forgive quickly, be kind always, don't leave the toilet seat up. You know, th- those kind of things. As someone who is the only uh, man in my house, I, all girls, all girl dogs, I have nowhere to hide in this one. I, I am exposed when it comes to leaving the toilet seat up. But we have the, these house rules, these in this family, these, these chores that we have to do. And in a lot of ways, these Ten Commandments are kind of functioning like these family rules. If you want to be a part of this family, this is what it looks like to be a part of this family. But really, chapter 20 is part of this greater section from Exodus 19 to Exodus 24 that we call God establishing the covenant. Now, covenant is an important word, important theme all throughout Scripture. If you want to understand the story of Scripture, you have to understand the idea of covenant. In fact, we, we break up our Bible into two books, right? We have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament. The New Testament. Which really, another translation for the word testament would be the word covenant. So we have an old covenant and a new covenant. But covenant isn't language we're super familiar with. We don't use, outside of maybe the covenant of marriage, we don't talk about covenants in our culture. Maybe the word that's closest to it would be contract, but it's still vastly different from this idea of covenant. But covenant was common language back in this ancient Near East time. Covenant was one of the ways that people interacted with one another. And so, for instance, if there was, like, two groups of people, and there was a king and another group, and they wanted to incorporate and become one, they would form this covenant. And it would would lay out all of the the stipulations and all of the things that were part. Like, if you want to uphold this covenant, this is what you got to do, and this is what you're going to get out of it, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I will get out of it. It was just everyday language. 
And I don't want to get too far into the weeds and lose some of you as we talk about covenant, but I do want, want to show, because there's something that's really fascinating for me. Is in the ancient Near East, there were a couple different kinds of, of covenant, but one of the covenants had a, a specific structure to it. So imagine you're filling out paperwork and there's different section headings. This covenant would always have these different section headings on them. And we're not going to go through all of them, but the first three are identification. So who's involved? The next one is, is history. What's our history together? And then the third part of this covenant is, is stipulations. And what's fascinating is if you look at Exodus 19 through 24, you will see these different elements of a covenant, the same covenant language that would have been used by all kinds of people here in Exodus. So for instance, Exodus 20 verse 2 starts off this way. I am the Lord your God. We have this identification of who is involved in this covenant. The next part was history. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is our past. This is our history. This is who we have been. And then the next several chapters go into these stipulations. What does it mean to be a part of this covenant? What does it mean to uphold it? The last few parts uh, are, are provision and divine witness and blessing. And we can see all of those parts within this covenant. And so it's fascinating the way that God understands the context of these Israelites and shows up and speaks to them in a language that they can understand in this covenantal language. So in some ways, this is very familiar. But what's not so familiar, what's, what's unique and unprecedented, is all throughout this ancient Near East history, there is no record of a god or a divine being entering into covenant with humans. In, in this polytheistic world that the Israelites find themselves in, there are all sorts of gods, but they never want to actually bind themselves to humans nor do they want to disclose what they're looking for, what, what, what they want, or what would appease them. It, it, it's like when I'm doing premarital counseling, one of the things I always talk about is this idea of expectations and being able to learn how to communicate your expectations. And, and some of these things are big, important things that we have to learn to communicate. Some of them are not so important. Like, did anybody else have to learn how to reload the dishwasher when you got married? I, you didn't even know you were doing it wrong, Right? And Lauren is so sweet, she wouldn't like tell me I was doing it wrong, but I would come back to the dishwasher and I'm like, I didn't put that bowl there. That's not where I had that. But you have to learn how to communicate these expectations of how you want things, how things should be. Maybe a better example for what we're talking about today is some of you, I'm sure, have had a boss. A boss that struggled to communicate what they were wanting from you. And so you were constantly going through your day and you were just hoping that the work you were doing was what the boss was looking for. And the only way you would know is when the boss would come and they would critique your work or tell you you weren't meeting the standards or you're doing all these things. And so you were constantly trying to figure out what do you want from me? See, in this polytheistic world, people were tiptoeing around these other gods just hoping that the things they were doing and the sacrifices they were making would appease these gods. But this isn't the heart of Yahweh, this God. A few weeks ago, Pastor John preached, and he talked about this journey as a journey of self-disclosure from God. That in the midst of God trying to deform and reform this group of people, God is also giving this act of self-disclosure, telling you what, what this God is like. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my people, if you want me to be your God, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I am like. 
And so we have this beautiful thing happening here where not only is God self-disclosing what he's like, but God is also choosing to move into covenantal relationship with these people. God's putting skin in the game. And so we come back to Exodus 20 and these Ten Commandments. And Pastor Rob got into this a little bit. He, he kind of dealt with more of the first four, but really he talked about Sabbath, the fourth commandment, this idea of Sabbath, that, that we're not a people who are defined by what we can do or what we can produce, but, but in, woven into the fabric of who we are is this idea of rest and Sabbath. And really, as you look at the Ten Commandments, you can kind of break them into two sections. The first four, which are more religious in nature, you know, how do you understand God and how do you interact with God? And, and the last six, which are a little more civil in nature. How do you understand people? How do you interact with people? And, and really, there's so much depth and beauty in these Ten Commandments, we could spend a week on each one of them uh, if we wanted to. Uh, and we're not going to do that, and we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of each one today, but I want to highlight a few parts of some of them. For instance, the, the honor your father and mother. We've often used that one to talk about kids listening to your parents, which is good. But what would it look like to talk about honoring your father and mother in the way that adult children honor their father, father and mother? Caring for aging parents after these parents aren't able to produce and give to society in the ways they once did. What would it look like to honor father and mother as we talk about faith being passed on from generation to generation to generation? The commandment, you shall not murder. In this ancient time, murder was almost always an act of revenge. Someone has done something to me, and so I am going to take revenge on this person. And what God is saying is, hey, hey, no, no, no. Revenge has no place in this covenantal community. That can be a word for us as well. I, I love the last one. It's really fascinated me this week as I, I, I've spent some time uh, looking at it. Don't covet your neighbor's household. What's fascinating is, is how would anybody know that you're coveting? I mean, coveting is something that happens in your heart and in your mind. So, so how would someone even be able to enforce that you're coveting? But what's happening here, what God is doing, is God is trying to remind that this formation that's happening in this people is not just external. It's not just about the things we do, but it's also internal. It's about our mind and our heart. That these Ten Commandments are really about this exclusive worship of Yahweh and to be a people of hospitality and justice so that they can be a blessing to the world. And so God is forming this in them forming these new, unique people. And what God is saying is that these commandments, this, this covenant, should touch every area of your life, the way you act, the way you speak, also the way you think and the way you believe. All of these things are part of this covenant. And, and so we have these Ten Commandments. And we, we, we frame them and we put them on the wall, which is fine, there's nothing wrong with that. We try to get them put up in, in you know, government buildings or things like that. And I'm not always sure that we really understand how these Ten Commandments function. Because I think what we often do when it comes to the Ten Commandments is we do something like this. Okay, so there's these Ten Commandments. So Israelites, what you need to do is you need to just follow these commandments, and if you follow them, then you'll be good with God, and you'll receive God's love and God's grace. Keep the commands, and if you do... If you do, then you'll be good with God. 
that's problematic for a couple reasons. The first is, is we only have to read a few chapters in Exodus to realize that <laughs> Israel doesn't do it. They can't keep their end of the covenant. And so what happens? I mean, what should happen, right? The covenant should be over. God's absolved from the covenant. Covenant dead, end of story. But that's not what we see throughout Scripture. What we learn is that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. In fact, and, even, and maybe even especially in the face of Israel's infidelity, God's faithfulness is even more on display, which is good news for us. But the other issue we have with this, you know, if you just do the right things, if you just keep the commands, then God will love you, God will give you grace, you'll be good with God, is that puts us as the ones who dictate God's love and grace. We are the ones who go first, and God's love and grace just becomes a response to us. It's what I call this outside-in kind of faith. If we just act the right way, if we just do the right things, then we'll be good with God and God will love us. And the problem with that is that's not the story we find in Scripture. This we move first and then God responds kind of story. In fact, the story of Scripture is just the opposite. That we see all the way from the beginning that that God is the one who moves first. I, I love how this chapter starts. Chapter 20 starts with these words. And God spoke. And God spoke. This reminder that that God was the one who initiated. And and you almost hear this echo in that all the way back to Genesis. Of this God who, who was hovering over and the spirit and the breath of God moved and spoke and creation came to being. And God spoke. Meaning that God was the one who moved first. And we are the ones who respond to what God is doing. And so the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are not this this means to receive God's love and grace. But the Ten Commandments are a response to the love and grace that God has already given. I mean, in this story specifically, where, where are we standing? They're at the base of Mount Sinai, which means God has already saved them out of Egypt out of captivity. God has liberated them, and now in response to the saving work that God has done, now they are invited to obey and to be part of God's people by doing these things. The Ten Commandments are not a means to which they can receive God's grace and love, but they are a response to the grace and love that God has already given. Meaning that that this faith and this life is best understood not as outside-in, but as inside-out. This is the same thing we see Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 15. When the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's going on? Your disciples, they're not washing their hands. They're not honoring the tradition. And Jesus says this in, in verse 11, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Jumping ahead to verse 18, it says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Now, I I don't want you to hear me wrong and and hear that Jesus and the Ten Commandments are saying that the things we do don't matter. Not at all. In fact, in some ways, they matter even more. 
Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes these Ten Commandments and he expands them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, thou shall not murder. We, we read that today. That's in the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, but I tell you, don't even have anger in your heart. So it's not at all that Jesus and these Ten Commandments are saying, you know, whatever you do, it just doesn't matter. Just do whatever. But what we are learning, what we are invited to see in this story is that the things that we do, the things that we do are not about getting ourselves to a place where then God can love us and give us grace. But the things we do are always in response to the grace that God has already given. Now, here's what I imagine. I imagine most of us are sitting here today and thinking, yeah, I know. I know, yeah, yeah, we're saved by grace alone. That's like the most basic sermon ever, Tyler. Got it. But I think it's one thing for us to say with our mouths and be able to articulate, yeah, we are saved by grace. And it's entirely another thing for us to be able to know that reality and live that reality deep within our bones. It's one thing just to articulate, yeah, 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 we live in response to God. But a lot of times, the way that I see us structure our lives and pattern our our lives would say and suggest something different. Sometimes I'll run into the the people from church at the store or at a restaurant or in a coffee shop. I I had one guy uh, who saw me in a grocery store and he said, oh my goodness, a pastor in the wild. Like they had let us out of our cages or something. But I can't tell you how many times in a conversation or a run-in like that, I'll hear something along these lines. Oh, pastor, you know, we haven't been there in a while, and, and we feel really bad about it. We want to get back. We've just been so busy. We've been traveling. We've had sports. We've had, you know, whatever. But we feel so bad. We, we, we want to get back. Or I had coffee with someone a month ago or so, and, and he was saying, you know, oh, I feel so bad. We just haven't been able to, to give like we want to. But, you know, there's bills and student loans, and we, just, we, we need to focus on those. And, uh, so, and, and he's confessing this to me. I didn't, I didn't bring it up. Or pastor, you're having a conversation with someone about faith, and they say, I can't remember the last time I read my Bible. Oh, I feel so bad. I know I need to read my Bible. I know it's good for me. I, I know I need to serve. I really want to serve, but life is just so busy right now. I really don't have time to serve. And what I hear in all of that is this, this faith that's reduced to this kind of moralism. Just do good. Just, just try to be good, or at least try to be better than, than this person. And we see this outside-in kind of faith. As if, I could just, if I just showed up a little bit more, if I just gave, if I just served, if I just read my Bible. And don't hear me wrong. We believe that showing up and being part of a covenant community is essential. We believe that tithing is a reflection of our discipleship. We believe that reading our Bibles is how we understand this story and interact with God and meet with God. Those things are not unimportant. But when I hear these things that are covered in guilt and shame about what we haven't done and and, and how we are falling short, oftentimes it reflects this outside-in kind of faith. Let me tell you about my own, my own struggle, my own temptation with this. The thing that I have to be aware of in my life, and maybe you can resonate with this, is it can be so easy for me to look at all of the things that I do for God. All of my work and service and things that I give and the ways that I show up. And I can begin to define my faith 
by the things that I do for God rather than the things that I have received from God. And even in that, I'm modeling this outside-in kind of faith that, that, that predicates God's grace and love around the things that I do. When our students got back from NYC a few weeks ago, Pastor Amanda had asked them to send them some testimonies just of what God has been teaching them, what God has done in their lives. And she was sharing this one testimony with me that I think reflects what we're talking about today. And I asked her to ask the student if I could share it. And the student said, yeah. And I want to read this for you, and I want you to understand, this is one of our high school students who's wrestling with this kind of thing. This is their testimony from NYC. This was the most powerful trip I've ever been on. There were so many things that stuck with me. The major thing, I think, was that I've carried around unnecessary, unnecessary guilt for so long without realizing it. This guilt so clenched me, and I didn't realize it. It was so bad, I had to set an alarm every night at 8 to make sure I didn't forget to pray or read my Bible, because if I didn't, that guilt would sit with me, and I wouldn't be able to sleep. And this weekend, I realized that God wants me to read my Bible and wants me to pray, but not because I feel guilty if I don't. Another example of my guilt was my offering. I would put dollars in the plate because that was all I had, but I felt guilty for not putting in 20. So letting go of all that guilt I put on myself was so impactful. The service that started was with Carly talking about unclenching your fist, and when Rich, when he said that you don't have to achieve to get into heaven, but you receive, and instantly in that moment, I felt God touch my heart. That worship was so powerful, I just wept. This trip was so renewing in the way I just felt so much love now mainly love for other people I have never felt before. When we were in the circle praying, I looked at every face of the students there and felt love towards them. And that started when Rich reminded us that holiness equals love. This is one of our students who has somewhere along the the line picked up this message that the things we do, this outside-in kind of faith, is the way that we are right with God. But I imagine it's not just our students who are wrestling with this. This kind of faith, which is just about achieving and doing, and if we can just do the right things, then, then God will be okay with us. But what I love about that testimony is the recognition, that freedom that comes with understanding God's grace, that not only does it free you, but it frees you to see and love people in a new way. The reminder for us today is that that the things we do aren't a means to God's love and grace. But our lives are this response to the love and grace that God has already poured out to us.